Listen now to The Proof Podcast Season 2, The Murder at the Warehouse. How'd you find out something had happened? My mom called me and said, Lori, the police found a body, and they're pretty sure it's Renee. Right, right away, you thought right Jake. Right away. In my head already, I thought it was Jake. Season 2 of Proof is available now, wherever you get your podcasts. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. This is a CBC Podcast. The following episode contains graphic language. Listener discretion is advised. You are listening to Season 2 of Someone Knows Something from CBC Radio. Previously on SKS. And have there been ever any other suspects in the case other than Michael Lavoy? There is not really a named person. No, there's not. It's not to say that his version of events did not happen. I said to her, I said, Richard knew uh, Sammy Perron. She said, yeah. The same Sam Ferreira? Yes, yeah. That went to jail for murdering two people? Yeah, yeah. And did Sheila know Richard at that time? Yeah. I just got goose pimple when I found that out. She told him he didn't have to pick her up, that Brian would be picking her up and bringing her home. Oh, okay. He said Brian Sweeney would pick her up. Yes. Mike and Cheryl started fooling around, and then Brian and him fought. And I believe they got into fisticuffs over it, too. So what kinds of things was being stolen at the time? Money. Always money. Always money. Was Cheryl ever involved in that? Was she? Oh, yeah. Oh, she was. Oh, yeah. She would uh, keep sex. Uh, you'd be down the road with a radio. You see anything? You know. Hey, there's somebody coming. Oh yeah. This is episode eleven. Blackmail. Oh, I just caught call my brother. Oh, okay. I well, told him. I just called him. I just, I said, well, fuck, you better call and make sure he's coming. But he just told me, no, get your name and number if you want, because he doesn't remember you or anything. I said, oh, yeah. some radio guy here wants to talk to you. Yeah, yeah. a cop. My brother goes, yeah, no. well, I don't know. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm not a cop. No. I just want to talk to him about, uh, I'm, I'm working on a documentary about Cheryl, his ex-wife. Cheryl, my sister-in-law. Yeah. Yeah, I was in the pen when that happened. I wasn't around. Uh, did did, did you know her? Question. Yeah, I know her. Yeah. Yeah, I just wanted to know. Like, I was I, I was in the pen with Keeper when he died with her her, her ex, the one that went out that she met Brian through. Brian oh. met her through Keeper. Can I Keith talk Dale? To, can I talk to you about that then? You did did you know Keeper? Yeah, they said I think I killed him. I'm at a modest single-story house beside a busy downtown Hamilton street. Its roof is being redone, and the three men doing it are about halfway there. But the shingler's just left for the day and I figured this was a good chance. The man who's worried I might be a police officer, the man who people think killed Keeper according to him, is Jay Sweeney. Jay is pale, almost gray-skinned, and seems to have recently lost some weight. He speaks quickly and candidly and he has a huge Rottweiler named Diesel. Whoa! <laughs> I'm here to see Brian Sweeney, who's Jay's brother and Cheryl Shepard's second husband. 
Cheryl divorced Brian less than seven months before she got engaged to Michael Lavoie. Brian was known for his break-and-enter activities, but police and his friends generally have had good things to say about him. He was kind-hearted, he and his mother participated in the searches for Cheryl, and he voluntarily took a lie detector test to try to remove any suspicion that he might have had something to do with Cheryl's disappearance. Police say he passed the test. Brian and Cheryl had an on-and-off relationship that Michael Lavoie reportedly didn't like. Stephen Porter, our body language expert, believed that Lavoie may have been sending a message to someone when he proposed to Cheryl on live TV that night. An aggressive, possessive stance. What he describes as an aggressive, possessive stance, almost a look of revenge, or quote-unquote, she's mine. Like he's sending a message to somebody who may be watching, or just to the world in general. If there was a message, was it being sent to Brian? Michael Lavoie's mother, Pat, has her own thoughts on Brian. When Tracy said to me, Mrs. Lewis was calling her and calling her and calling her about this stuff, right? What do you know about it, Tracy? Tracy said, I don't know anything. I was home with my kids. Well, you and Brian were together that night. She said, no, we weren't. But Mrs. Lewis kept insisting they were together. Don't forget to tell the police you were together with Brian. So whether she suspected Brian, I don't know. Pat also told me that Michael had told her that Brian was the one who was supposed to pick Cheryl up from Niagara Falls on January 2nd. So for these and other reasons, I really need to talk to him. Back to Jay and Diesel. I let you in, but I don't know if you get along with my dog It's a nice dog. He'll bite you. Is it? He's pushing. Is it? He's intimidating it, but he's good. He won't bite you if I tell him not to. Uh, Why is he not scared? Okay. You can come in if you want. You're not the cops, right? No, no, no. I I am a radio guy. I'm fine. Yeah, good, good. I saw my brother going to jail for me if he is in trouble. No, no, no. Wait up, buddy. I want to get back to Keith Keeper Dale, Cheryl's first husband. Keeper was discounted by police as a suspect in Cheryl's disappearance and later died in jail after drinking too much homebrew and tumbling off the range over a low railing. The coroner's inquest found that the death was accidental, but... Yeah, they suddenly think I killed him. They think you killed him? Well, I don't know if they do. They called me out three times. Kept saying the they that Jay is referring to here would be the corrections officers and police investigating Keeper's death. Like he was like a brother to us, to me and Brian. He was Brian's partner, but he was a good friend of mine too. He came down to the pen to see me because I'd already been down there for a few years. You were at Collins Bay? Yeah. See, I used to teach there. I used to teach at Collins Bay. I was there from 96 till 2002. I would have been there 96. I was I there. Carbio Tail India. I was just got there, so. Do you I remember a guy to... named Duck Lowe? He was a Vietnamese dude. Yeah, I do remember. I spent less than a year teaching at Collins Bay and other federal correctional institutions, but it was a real eye-opener, to say the least. Collins Bay was medium security at the time, with the facade of a Disney-like castle and the gray interior of a modern dungeon. My connection to the place seems to break the ice with Jay. Well, you want to talk or something? Like I wouldn't mind chatting with it. Do you think your dog's dog, okay? Dog. Yeah, he's all right. Diesel, be nice. Daddy's friend. Be nice. Be nice. Come on. You know, so let's go, Dees. Come on, Dees. Sorry, don't worry about it. You know why? I bet you I'm going to lock him up. There's a cross Oh, okay. Uh, four times. When oh, no. Yeah, okay. Two years ago. Okay. You okay? Dog's locked up. Why do you want in? Okay, good. Thanks, man. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you said check for dinner. One sec. 
Diesel's locked in a back room and Jay heads into the kitchen to check on our roast beef he's cooking for dinner. It's a dark but comfortable living room, nondescript but for a brand new towering stereo system. According to Jay, Brian lives in the basement, so maybe if I stick around long enough, he'll come home. I know that Brian was discounted as a subject, as a, yeah, you know, that's... Yeah, the lie detector the test lie. helped out with the search. I don't think he did. He still loved her. Yeah, yeah. My brother-in-law, that's my brother-in-law, Mikey Lavoy, that went out with her. It's proposed to her on TV. And I was thinking, you little weasel, because he, Mikey, little Mike, was Brian's partner. They were partners for a while, doing scores or whatever. Mm. They were just partners. Me and my brother, Mikey, and his brother, Tommy, I went out with their sister, Tracy. She's got my kid. And then my brother went out with her and had two kids with her. So me and my brother never talked for 10 years. So oh, this so Tracy Lavoie. Tracy Lavoie. Jay says he had a child with Michael Lavoie's sister, Tracy. Afterward, Jay's brother, Brian, began a relationship with Tracy, and they had two children together. Jay tries to explain the Lavoie family to me. Little Mike's the youngest. Tommy's the older than Tracy by a year. Me, Tommy, Brian, and Mikey hung out when I was doing stealing cars and shit when we were younger, and they were just kids too. They were like 16, 18, and I was 19 or 20. And uh, this is years ago. I was going out with their sister and their older brother I hung around with, and I helped them out, Porky. Porky, I discover later, is Steve Lavoie, who was sick in bed when I went to visit. Little Mike's the snake, he's the weasel. Those guys were partners. Little Mike and my brother got in a fight, and Brian had a black eye and a bite mark on him. But I guess Brian did okay, my brother. I didn't think he could fight that good, but I guess he can. So Mike and him broke up, and Mike started banging or going out with Cheryl, seeing Cheryl. Brian left. He's not that type to hit the girls, as far as I know. Then on New Year's Eve, I see when I'm in jail, he proposed to her. And then three days later, she disappeared. So... You're Brian's oldest brother? Older brother, yeah, two years. How long were you in the pen? 10 years, 12 years. Wow. 13 years, yeah. Can you tell me what for or no? I crushed the guy's head with my hands and feet, attempted murder. So, when you were in the pen, uh, you were there when Keeper came? I was there for a few years. Keeper came down to say hi to me. He pled guilty with some of his charges that Brian and him were going in the bucket for. Uh, I see. Okay. So, Keeper pled guilty to two years, come down to see me, ahead of Brian. I see. Brian was looking at time, too, I guess. I don't know what happened. So, were you interviewed about Cheryl's nope, disappearance? No, never about oh, okay. Cheryl, because I was in the pen. But you knew Cheryl? Yeah, I met her. I was at their wedding, all drunk with my uncle. Fact, my uncle was passing out counterfeit money, my brother caught him. <laughs> At the wedding? Yeah, and I had to <laughs> smash my uncle for it. And oh, man. Yeah, it was crazy. We drank. We were nuts like a bunch of fucking hillbillies back then. Do you right. feel like you're back? You look like you're kind of back on your feet to me. Like it doesn't. Yeah, I do okay. I, I don't have... drink no more. Yeah, well, I've been out since 2009, so doing okay. Yeah, you know. it was crazy. I made all the shine. Never got caught since 96 to 205 when I got out. I just took it easy. But I was careful who I gave it to so people wouldn't get stupid. But Keeper fell down the stairs, I guess, and died. And they thought maybe he was drinking with me. There was an argument. He was in my cell, someone told him. He left my cell staggering, mouthing off, drunk. And they called me out and said, do you drink? I said, no. Were you drinking with Keeper? No. Well, we got story. I don't care. The guy fell. I know that for a fact. Nobody was with him. But, and I was the last one with him. They don't know that, but I was the last one walking him towards the stairs saying, you're going to be okay? Get to bed. They're calling a lockup soon. You all right? Yeah. And all of a sudden, I felt the whole floor shake, and a black guy run upstairs. Oh, your buddy just fell. I said, what? Hmm. Brains everywhere. It's his own fault. I told him, be careful. He's a big boy. He's 260. He fell over the railing, I heard. Keeper's death was ruled an accident, 
by an Ontario coroner's inquest. So, what do you think about Cheryl? What do you know about Cheryl? Or what? She was an ex-dancer, so thoughts kind of attitude, you know, outgoing, I guess. My brother's wife. I didn't want to talk down about her. I could care less. I stayed to myself since me and my brother had our problems. But I mean, I don't. I knew her. I've seen her all the time. My mom's house and with Brian. And we, yeah, Brian and Keeper brought her to the house a few times. And your mom was Dorothy, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And she likes Cheryl, right? Yeah, she always gets along good with all the family. So you know, hopefully Brian will want to talk to me because he knew Cheryl. And uh, do you think he'll be interested, or he's my brother, but he lives here with with me for seven years, and we've never sat down for five minutes and talked. He's not like that. He does his own thing. He's not on a different wavelength than me. I thought it was because I used to drink and stuff, because he don't drink or do drugs. Mm. Now I don't drink, and he lives with me and stuff because he needed a hand, but now he's working, doing great, going to school. He's doing good now. I got him a good job. Is he, he's doing a... Uh, he's like, doing electrical and handyman crap, but I mean, now he's going to school for his ticket, I think, for electric, electricity, I think, electrician. So he lives downstairs he's got now? his own apartment, yeah. Oh, old basement, kitchen, everything. I just cook for both of us. I got all the food up here. He just no sense of filling up two fridges with two guys. One second. Yep. Sorry, man. Yeah, no problem. What do, you, what do you think Brian's gonna? He said an hour, hour and a half, but I can call him right now and see if he's gonna be much longer or what. Yeah. Well, just tell him you're hanging out so long, you're gonna be. I'll find out Brother, brother, you still working? Oh, buddy's here still. He's talking to me. It's about Cheryl. He's just gonna ask you if he can talk to you some questions, some uh, inter interview uh, radio guy or something. But I just told him what I know. I don't know much. What? No, he just wanted to ask, see if he could answer some questions to him for his show or whatever. But I don't know what his trip is. What? what can, what's this for? Where, Brian? I'll let you say hi quick. I'll let you say hi quick. Hold it. Quick, I cut him off. Hey, Brian. Hey, how how are you? It's David here. I. I work for CBC uh, Radio, and I'm just working on a documentary about Cheryl, and I thought since you knew her that I could, this is a good place to start. So I'm just sitting here hanging out, so I can wait for you if you like. Is that okay? Okay, sure. Okay, I'll see you here then. Thanks. Okay, bye. He says he'll, he says he's going to chat. He says he'll chat. He will? Yep. Yeah, you're lucky that I pushed the phone on, I pushed the phone on. He doesn't like getting cut off guard like that. Once he gets here, he's all right. He's not a bad guy, Brian. He just usually doesn't get involved with people. He does his own thing. I don't know. He's a weird one. He'll tell you he's coming. He doesn't come. He used to tell me all the time, yeah, I'll be right there. And you don't see him for six months. Well, you know, people can change. People can change. I've been here for a while, and Jay wants to let the dog out of the back room. So I move into the front foyer and stand behind a glass door. That's a big dog. He's just very protective. So I your last name record. is, is it Lewis or Sweeney? Sweeney, legally Lewis, I was brought up as my stepfather. Oh, so your stepfather is Lewis? Yeah, Okay. so they all know me as Lewis, alias Sweeney. My ID's all in his Sweeney. Brian's too, I guess. It's been a while since Brian said he was on his way home, and I've spent well over an hour with Jay. He's telling me about another fight when a text comes in. Over Porky. I was going after Porky to punch him out and keep her grabbing. So. 
Brian. Hey, I just got called back to work. I have to fix a boiler. They have no heat. So he ain't coming home because he's on call even when he's home. Okay. But I mean, that's the job he's got. He works at halfway houses. Now he's got to fix a boiler. They have no heat. Jay shares Brian's number with me and I send him a text asking him to let me know when he's free. Before I leave, I decide to ask one last time about Jay's thoughts on Cheryl's disappearance. You know, I just, uh, if you're going to put my opinion that I think it was Mike and Thing on there, I got right. no hate against these people. If I had to guess, that's where I would start, that's all I'm saying. I'm not saying that they, they did anything. That's okay, I can use that statement that you just said there. They, they know my opinion, they don't come near me, so. All right, well, I thank you for your time. Yeah, yeah, no I problem. Really I, got, I got no reason to hide or anything like that. Brian, well, he's a quiet guy. Nice to meet you, man. You too, buddy. Yeah, and uh, say bye to your dog for me. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks a lot, buddy. Take care. Okay. Jay was trying to be helpful, and I felt that in the discussion I had with him. Making my way home to Toronto, I receive a call from Odette. Hello. Hi, Dave. Hey, how are you? Fine. I was talking to my sister-in-law this morning. Yeah. She told me something that uh, that you should look into it. Okay. I'll need to make a U-turn to talk to someone else. I pull up outside of a Hamilton low-rise, a building that looks like it was built in the early 1960s, wrapped with balconies. Inside, Cheryl's aunt, Margaret Gionet. Odette says Margaret's been holding on to a piece of very interesting information for nearly 19 years. Information that Odette herself has apparently only today just heard about. Margaret's apartment is very orderly, everything in its place. An arthritic 15-year-old cat named Angel sprawls on the carpet and if I approach, her eyes go full black. Margaret herself is a youngish mid-sixties, with thin lips, a serious gaze and stylish rose metal glasses. We settle on a flowery, well-worn beige couch. Tell me everything you can remember about her, and then we'll get into the other story. Okay, now where do you want me to start? Because she was at our place on New Year's Eve. My son gave her the tickets to go to the place where Mike Lavoie proposed to her. I can start from before she was taken away. She had come to me at one point, and she asked me about stripping. She used to strip, but because her uncle found out, he was hurt, and she stopped. She got her job at Tim Hortons, and she was working somewhere else, but I cannot remember where. And uh, so she stopped. And there was a a time that she came over to 
our place with Mike's kids. And I had baked cookies, and she asked, if, and I said, you don't have to ask, bring them. And they came over, and they had cookies and milk or juice or whatever, and this is when she said to me, she says, I need to go and dance because Sheila needs some help. And I said, what do you mean? So she proceeded to tell me, and I said, okay. I said, I will deal with your uncle. I was Cheryl had pledged to her uncle after he found out about her stripping that she would not do it again but came back, Margaret says, to get her blessing, to do it one more time to help her sister Sheila's financial situation. This was about a year before Cheryl disappeared, Margaret says, and as far as she knows, was the last time Cheryl danced. To help Sheila out, and she said, and this will be the last. And as far as I know, that was the very last for stripping. That was about a year before she went missing approximately a year that before she went missing. She had Mike's kids with her when she asked you that? Yeah. Yeah, well, the kids went outside in the back and played. How long do you think she was with Mike? Off and on. Um, I'd say a year or more, mm-hmm. maybe a couple years. Uh, she called us a couple of times to come over. He would beat her up. She just said, he beat me up. He beat me up. I mean, there was times she's had a few bu- bruises on her. Where were the bruises? There was some on her side, in her arms, her legs. But she, she would go back to him again. And I told him, I said, if I ever catch you doing it, I says, and I don't believe that you didn't lay a hand on her, I said, you better hope the police get to you first. I said, because I'll kill you. On New Year's Eve, 1997, Margaret saw Cheryl one last time when she dropped by to pick up the tickets to the event at the Hamilton Convention Center. Margaret says she talked to Cheryl about Odette, who would soon be coming back from New Brunswick. And then when we gave her the tickets, and she was joking around with her uncle and stuff, and then she says, well, we're going to go. And I said, you be careful. And I said, you take care of yourself. And I says, any problems, you call us. And she says, I will. And I says, I'm serious. And my husband did not trust him. And then... Uh, We saw it on the news where he proposed to her, and my husband said, oh, no, not not him. And I said, I'd like to know where he got that ring. I said, he never had money in his pocket to buy a ring. And on New Year's Day, she phoned to tell us that she got engaged. And there was something in her voice, but I never picked up on it. But I can't talk too long, Auntie. I'm in a rush. i got to get going. I've got a lot of people I have to talk to. And I thought there was something about the voice. And then that was the last I spoke to her. Mm. And then when, the, when uh, it was settled that she had gone missing, um, there was Sheila, my husband, myself, and I can't remember who. Uh, there was a bunch of us. We had gone to the police station or whatever, and Sheila had a letter. She said it was from Cheryl. This is why Odette called me, and this is why I am here. A letter that Cheryl gave her sister Sheila. Sheila, Cheryl's sister, uh, said she had a letter and she wanted to give it to the police. I can't remember if they took the letter, and the letter had come from Cheryl. Margaret says Cheryl had previously told her about a letter that she gave to her sister Sheila. 
Apparently, it contained information about illegal activities Cheryl and those around her had been undertaking. She said, if anything happens to me, if I go missing or I'm hurt in any way, she said, just make sure that she uses it. She knew everything and she said, my life will be in danger if once I spill the beans. So there's this letter and if Sheila still has it or if the detectives have it. I can't remember the detectives' names. Uh, they were the first two detectives on the case. It's important to keep in mind here that Margaret says she never actually read the letter Cheryl told her about. Did you see the letter that Sheila had that she said Cheryl wrote to her? She had a, a, the paper. She had the paper. She just said, I have it here. And Cheryl told me herself before, she said, if anything should ever happen, Aunt Mark, she says, there, I gave Sheila a letter, and it's to be opened when anything happened because she says, I need you to know that my life will be in danger. Will be in danger. She didn't ex uh, specify how, when, why. She said, if I go through and tell what I know, she said, I will be in danger. She says, and you need to, you know, and she says, Sheila has this letter. So have you ever spoken to Sheila about the letter since then? No. Actually, I haven't spoken to Sheila in maybe seven years or more. Sheila's like that. She does it, you know, every now and again. She'll come and talk, and other days she won't. But I haven't spoken to her since. I really want to talk to Sheila because I think she's, I mean, she's obviously Cheryl's sister, and she has a connection to her, but also she keeps coming up in conversation, especially this letter. I mean, it's important. That's as far as I know exactly what was in it? Like I said, I don't know if I've read it. I can't remember if I did. There was so much going on now, but she had it in her hand. She had, and she had a tape. I remember a tape being in her hand too. A videotape? I don't, it was a, I think it was like a cassette tape, a small tape. Sheila had the tape? Yes. She said, I have a tape and I've got the letter. And I can't remember if the, police officers or whoever it was or the detectives they took it but I know it seemed like it was just a waste of time for us to be there at that time and they said oh they'll be in touch with you but I can't remember if they took anything if it would be in for the evidence or if Sheila still has it in her possession or or what I'm gonna have to go find out and hopefully Sheila is open to talking to me about it Margaret says she saw Sheila, Cheryl's sister, with the letter and a tape, with Sheila saying the identical story from Cheryl. If something happens to me, read the letter, listen to the tape. I probe further to see if Margaret knows anything else about the case. Did you ever think that there might have been another prime suspect in the disappearance? I do. Um, sometimes I thought of Brian. But I knew he loved her to pieces, and I don't know. They've had a lot of ins and outs. They've had a lot of, she was married to him. And I do know for a fact that if she ever went stripping, if Cheryl did go, it was in Niagara Falls, and he was the only one that ever took her because he would drop her off, and then she would tell him when her last 
performance or whatever you want to call it was going to be. And he went and picked her up. He never went in to see her, never. Whereas Mike was never ever there because she knew he wanted to go in and watch her. And she didn't want that. <laughs> but Brian, I'd like to think not. He went for a lie detector's test and he passed it. Even the detective said, and I said, Brian would know where she is. Brian know, knew a lot. And I said, ask Brian. Now, they had, she knew a lot of people. Mm. So I don't know. And you say that Brian was the one that would always take her down to Strip and Niagara and bring her back. Yeah. How do you know that? She told me herself. She, she told me. She said, he's the only one that I trust. Brian. Yeah. Because I said to her, I says, how are you going to get there? Then one night, and she says, Brian. Brian will take me. But this would have been a year before she disappeared. Yeah. Okay. Did you ever meet Brian? Yes, I have. I liked him. I really did. Um, but he was nothing but a gentleman towards us. So, but I mean, I've heard stories about him. I didn't like the idea when I found out that he was with Mike when doing all these robberies and he was in jail too. I know Cheryl had problems with Brian, but they were more to do domestically, not fighting. He, he never hit her, but he ran around on her when they were married and all the rest of it. So they had, you know, mm-hmm. issues like that. But we were never, ever called hmm. where he hit her or, or anything. Even when they split up, they weren't divorced at the time. If she needed help, he was there for her. Did she ever tell you about any of the th- robberies or anything that were undertaken by these guys? Um, I don't know where or anything. She just told me, you know, they would do these robberies. And there was even times Mike would have these guys working it. And he would say, well, I'm going to go away. I can't be here. And then a lot of times, this is how Brian had to go in jail. And whoever was with Brian doing this one, he called the police on them. Mike did. And then they got caught and they went to to jail. How do we know that Mike called the police? Is that? Well, Cheryl was telling me this. I I got a lot of information from her. According to what Margaret says, Cheryl told her that Michael Lavoie was allegedly snitching on his fellow B&E mates, perhaps avoiding doing time is the implication. Pat Lavoie told me previously that Cheryl was snitching on the same group. Police say that Cheryl was known to have had dealings with a now deceased officer named Ron Collingwood about a break and enter he was investigating. And there's also anecdotal information from police that Michael Lavoie was involved in a B&E along with two others, but the charges against Lavoie were dropped while the other two had to serve time. I'll have to try verifying this with Brian and hopefully Michael himself, but I'm also going to have to speak to Sheila about this letter and tape. The mention of a tape brings to mind another story I've been hearing about something that I held back from earlier episodes because I wanted to investigate it further. A story involving other videotapes and blackmail. I first heard about it from Betty Jurgen. The way I met Cheryl was um, through Keeper. She used to be married. To, to help keep track, Betty Jurgen was a friend who later married Cheryl's first husband, Keith Keeper Dale. 
Her chihuahua Chester sat on my lap during the interview. Um, she was his ex-wife, and I was cool with that. I mean, I Betty told me about a story where Cheryl got in touch with her in the fall, September of 1997. And she wanted to go and meet with Mike Lavoy, and she wanted me to go with her. And Cheryl wanted to meet Mike. Cheryl wanted to meet Mike Lavoy because she wanted to get these videotapes from him. Now, the videotapes apparently contain sexual um, content and also um, a certain crime. Sexual content or a certain crime. What it was, I don't know. I'm just, she just kept on emphasizing how she wanted to get these tapes and she wanted to get it from him. She was afraid of him and she just wanted me to be on the lookout. I wasn't supposed to go with uh, Cheryl to approach Mike Lavoie. I was just supposed to be like behind the scenes. When, when was this with the tapes? This September, the first week, because my daughter was born September 3rd. Um, and she's going to be 19, and she was just born. So I would say it could have been around the 6th, 7th, 8th of September, almost 19 years ago, that this happened. 1997. She, yeah. She Months deposed. before she disappeared. Betty remembers the dates in September 1997 so precisely, she says, because she'd just given birth. But because she'd just gotten home from hospital, it meant that she couldn't go with Cheryl as her backup. And I said to her, I said, I would love to help you out, Cheryl, but I'm all stitched up. I there's no way I can even help you if you're into trouble to protect you or do anything because I'm not going to be able to no, run. No. So she said, well, okay. And then she goes, I'll just do it on my own. And I begged her not to do it. She ended up leaving my house. Uh, Brian had stayed at my house and she took off by herself. Later on that evening, we were all supposed to meet up at Tim Hortons again, and we did. And at that point in time, she had told Brian, you know what, get your stuff, move out. You know, me and Mike are back together. And I just looked at her like, what? You know, just not even a couple hours ago, you were fearful because you wanted these tapes and that. So I just feel that it was very odd. He's moving in and you're moving out. It's like, how does that work? And she would have been afraid of Mike. Why? What? I was getting from her being afraid and the way she was talking and wanting me to behind the scenes because I think she was afraid he would do something. I mean, the videotapes, you know what, if it's exposed, what's the worst that's going to happen? So I think it's because she was afraid, you know, he was very violent is the impression I was getting. I mean, I just personally think that if you're going to blackmail someone, I mean, why even be with that person? If that person's not going to be, you know, if they have to have a hold over you to mm. keep you, why be with that person? There's something more to it. Like, I mean, there's right. got to be more behind the scenes that I'm not seeing. Did anything ever come up of the tapes again after that? Like, she went back with him. She mm -hmm. went, to, went to see him to get the tapes. Then she went back with him, yeah. said goodbye, Brian. And mm -hmm. then did you ever hear about the tapes again? No. Nope. Not at all. So where are those tapes? Whether he even has those tapes? I don't even know. Those tapes were never, ever mentioned. And I don't know if anyone else knew about it. That's why I remember having that conversation with her. And I would never, other than telling you and telling the police, I would never tell anyone else about these tapes. Betty knows about this story, she says, because Cheryl told her about it. But it is possible that Brian Sweeney also knows something about it. And Pamela Branton, who Odette and I met with near the propane tanks, also has a version of a story to tell about blackmail. Pam says she saw Cheryl in late December, 1997. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. 
In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters, and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. Then I went to her place the last time, about not even a week before she went missing. And when I was over there, they got me drinks and that. And then we said, let's go over to the bar. Well, when we went there, she said, I'm going to leave now. I said, won't you stay? She's like, I can't stay. And she's never like that. She don't say, I can't stay. She would have stayed. So, and then she said something about him blackmailing her for her to stay with him. Who? Mike. Mike Lavoie. Yeah. So did you ask what that meant? Blackmail? Had something to do with Sears. I don't know. She mentioned something about that. Something to do with Sears. Yeah. Sears, the department store. We don't know what Pam means here, but a narrowly defined news search from the time reveals that a Sears in Hamilton was broken into in March 1997 and that some TVs were stolen. A police canine unit was reportedly unsuccessful in tracking the thieves. It's unknown who undertook the break-in, or if it's related to Pam's conversation with Cheryl. Something about she knows a lot of stuff about Sears. I don't know. My sister told her to get rid of them, and she says, I can't. Something about a blackmail on her. Yeah, I don't know if it makes a difference. But it's good to know, right? They never yeah. ever asked me. The police never ever questioned or asked me anything. Only Paula, not me. Did Paula ever talk to you about this blackmail business? No, I don't think she knows. I don't know if she knows. So what's going on here? Was Michael Lavoie blackmailing Cheryl? Did he have videos of her that she didn't want anyone to see? One of a sexual nature and one of a robbery? perhaps a robbery at Sears, like Pam was mentioning. Or, as I've heard from Margaret, Cheryl's aunt, did Cheryl also have something on Michael with her own tape and letter? It's clear from Margaret, Betty, and now Pam that Cheryl was afraid of something happening to her. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, sir. Uh, A woman I've met after the podcast began rolling out also says she heard Cheryl say something that indicated she felt she was in danger. When was the last time you talked to Cheryl in her life, like, ever? The last time I talked to Cheryl was the day she told me, Grace, don't be surprised if I go missing. That was the last time. Grace Russo was a friend of Cheryl's and says she even lived with her for a while. The entrance to Grace's home is actually a garage door. I can't keep the birds quiet. Sorry. Inside, a bird in a cage and a cat on the floor, and we move into a small living room to sit. Grace is an American citizen, and she's wearing a V-neck gray shirt with dark hair, eyes and glasses, and has expansive wing-like gold earrings and a tiny stud nose piercing. Uh, she, she was a good person, Cheryl. Um, I walked her to work to pick up her check. She knew something was going to happen. What? I don't know. I didn't have a chance to talk to her, and I'm so 
upset about that because I wish I would have had the time to talk to her because we wouldn't be going through this now. You know what I mean? And when we got towards the parking lot, just as we hit the very end of the parking lot, she looked at me and said, Grace, don't be surprised if I go missing. Like, when she went missing, it ripped me apart. Grace has a hard time recalling exactly when this conversation might have occurred, and she doesn't have any further details, but based on her account, she puts it somewhere between early September and late November of 1997. But Grace has a few other stories that help to shed light on Cheryl, Brian, and Michael. What I know of Mike, I don't like. What do you know about Mike? Mike is a very angry man. He scares me. I remember when him and Cheryl had an argument and he cut up all her clothes and he took a bulldog, a red bulldog, and he ripped the head off. Right? Stuffed animal, like a stuffed yeah, animal. Yeah, it was a stuffed animal, but I mean, still. Like, but you witnessed that. I saw that. So I'm interested in what you saw with I your eyes. I saw that with my own two eyes. How did he cut the clothes up? With what? A scissors. And he just cut them and... Yeah. Oh, yeah. Brian went out and bought her brand new clothes because he didn't want to see her do without. Brian was a good man. He would do anything for her. He would walk the sun and the moon with that woman. Hmm. Like, that's how much Brian loved Cheryl. Grace goes on to tell me a story from when she and Cheryl were living together. Some of the items in their apartment were borrowed from Brian, she says, and these and other items police found there turned out to be stolen property. Grace and Cheryl were arrested as a result. Next thing you know, there's cops from hell everywhere. And I'm going like, what the hell is going on here? Like, he goes, well, you're under arrest. And I says, under arrest for what? Uh, stole, well, I don't know, some kind of stolen whatever. And I says, Stolen merchandise? Yeah. And I go, look, I don't know what you're talking about, but whatever. So they handcuffed me. And uh, they handcuffed Cheryl. And it was so funny. She's so skinny, right? She went, Grace. And she wiggled them. Her hands were out of those handcuffs. I went, Oh, you witch. Like, serious? And, like, she put them back on. But she showed me she could take them off. So they took us up to this place on the mountain. The police? Yes. They talked to Cheryl. I don't know what they said to her, but when they got a hold of me, I says, Look, I don't know what was in my house. I have a lock on my bedroom door. I don't go in other people's stuff. That's not my business. So what did the police find in your apartment? Um, apparently they found a book of uh, pink insurance slips. Um, they took all her shoes. Uh, that poor girl, like, I mean, she was lucky she had a pair of running shoes. Cheryl. Yeah. They didn't take anything of mine, but Cheryl, oh my God, I'm telling you, a mouthpiece and a half. She would not shut up at the police station. I'm telling you, in the jail, oh my God, I wanted to choke her. I swear to God. Why? 
<laughs> what like was she, she saying? Was screaming at the cops, yelling at them, F off. You know, like all this kind of stuff. And I'm going, Cheryl, shut up. We could get out of here tonight. Shut your mouth. Be quiet, you know. But no, I had to stay in there. And I was like stressed right out. Did it turn out that the stuff was Brian's? Like, was going uh, on? Yeah, it did actually, to be honest with you. Did Cheryl ever serve any time in jail? No, Cheryl did not. Brian did, but Cheryl did not. No, she was 120 things of community service. Hours or days? Yeah, something like hours. That. Yeah. Court records indicate that Cheryl was given community service hours for an offense of possession of stolen property under $5,000 in yeah. July 1996. It's not known if this is the same incident that Grace is saying Brian served time for. And what Cheryl actually did to receive the charge is still unknown without some further information. I finish up my interview with Grace, but I'm still left with questions. Why is it that Cheryl feared for her safety? Is the answer in the letter and tape that Cheryl allegedly gave to Sheila, her sister? Did Sheila give it to police? And if not, does she still have it? I need to speak to Sheila. Hello, hello. Oh, hi. Uh, can I speak to Sheila, please? I'm sorry, speak louder. Oh, can I speak to Sheila, please? Oh, you must have missed out. There's no Sheila here. Okay. Do you know Sheila, Sheila Shepard? I'm outside a squat, pinkish apartment building, and I'm trying to find Sheila. Even Odette has trouble reaching her, as I understand their relationship is sometimes strained. The number I've tracked down for Sheila appears to be the right building, but the wrong person. Do you want me to walk up and take this phone up? Is it important, sir? Yeah, I would, I would like to talk to her. Does she have a phone? I'm not sure. Okay, if you could take the phone up to her, that would be great. Uh, I always know it is the second door. I'll, I'll tell you when I'm getting down. I'm almost up okay. all the way now. Sheila? Hello? Oh, hi. Is this Sheila? Yeah. Hi, Sheila. My name's David Ridge, and I'm working on a radio documentary about Cheryl. Yes. And I, would be really I get Sheila's number and call her back on her own phone, but she doesn't want to meet in person. Can we do this over the phone? Uh, we can. I'm actually parked nearby outside. We can do it outside if you want, or inside, or... Uh, or... Um, no, no, no. I'll do it over the phone, otherwise I won't do it at all. Okay, well, let's do it over the phone. Okay. Okay, great. Bye. Sheila, just tell me a little bit about what you remember about Cheryl and, and, and anything you want to talk about. What do I remember about her? She was a beautiful young lady who was vibrant. And what do you remember about the time when she disappeared there? What Around that time, what was going on in her life? She was with Mike. He was controlling. He used to camp out at her workplace. Very controlling. Um, she used to come by to visit the kids. I had a couple kids at that time. It was just before Christmas. She stopped by with some gifts for the kids, and I was supposed to, the day, the day she disappeared, I was supposed to go to her house to do my laundry. But it, nobody could reach her. 
So the day she disappeared, which was what date? Can you remember the date? Was it January 1st or 2nd that you were supposed to go do the laundry? 2nd. Okay. And then what happened? I couldn't reach her. And then um, I can't remember the day that my mom came home from New Brunswick. I think it was the next day or maybe that day. Her and Mike came to my place. And um, Mike seemed very nervous. My kid's father commented on it. They used to play hockey together. And he commented on how nervous he was. He was, he had a ring on and he kept turning and bringing, kept looking. I had a picture of my sister on my desk and he kept on looking at the picture. And Mike came alone to your place? No, he came with my mother. Oh, with your mother. And this was after Cheryl disappeared? Yes. To be clear here, Sheila is saying that Michael Lavoy and Odette visited her on the morning of Monday, January 5th, after Cheryl went missing. And so he looked nervous. Did he ever say anything to you or, or to your, I guess, husband or boyfriend at the time about anything of this? Um, no, no. We, um, I, I never, I seen them once after that. My children's father and I were at the casino and Richard and Mike had an altercation in the casino. I see. Um, that was the only time that I've seen Mike since my sister's disappearance. Do you remember Cheryl ever talking to you about being worried about Mike? Yes. She gave me a tape, a little micro tape. And she said if anything was to ever happen to her, to give it to the police. I never listened, I never had a recorder, I never listened to this tape, but I gave it to the police. So so you gave the tape to the police? Yes. Okay. And did she also write a letter? Not that I know of. Okay. So you never had a letter from Cheryl? No. Okay. And and what did Cheryl say was on the tape, and why would she have given you this tape? I can't really assume. But she said if anything was to ever happen to her, to give it to the police. So there was never any discussion about what was on it, just, just that it might have... No, there was no, there was no discussion. And you just kept it and dutifully gave it to police? Correct. When did she give you that tape? When did Cheryl give you the tape, Sheila? Oh. Oh, God. I don't remember when. Would it have been a year, two years, or many months or days before she disappeared? No, you know? it would have been like maybe two, three months. Like, it's been a while, you know what I mean? And I, I can't think right now, like, when she gave that tape to me. Did you think it was weird that Cheryl came to you with a tape? Well, I, I thought it odd. When she gave it to me, she didn't seem worried about it. She just said, if anything was to ever happen, just give this to the police. Interesting. And she said, don't tell anybody, not even Richard. So I hid it. And when she disappeared, when the, they found Mike in the locked storage garage, 
and the police wanted us to come in, that's when I brought the tape in. Because I believe something happened to her. You didn't have a tape player that could play it, uh, and you obviously didn't make a copy of it, I guess. No. Okay. So that, that indicated to you that she was worried about Mike? Correct. Did you ever witness any violence between Cheryl and Mike? Yes. We called the police one time in her apartment. He was being very aggressive with her. I called the police, the police came, and escorted him out. Can you describe the aggression? What was going on? He was just manhandling her. He had her by her wrist. He was shoving her. Did you ever um, witness Cheryl being violent with anybody? No. Okay. And with regards to Cheryl's, I'm sorry, I got all these questions. I'm just going to keep rolling through them if that's okay. Um, did you uh, ever witness, did you ever see Cheryl dance in any of the strip clubs? Yes, years ago. And, and when do you think that Cheryl stopped stripping? Maybe mm, a year before her disappearance. I'm just assuming, like, I, I, I just woke up, so I, I, I'm not thinking clearly. I haven't had my cup of coffee yet. Okay. Um, did you ever t uh, know Brian Sweeney? Yes. And what did what were your thoughts on Brian? Well, I liked Brian when he was married to my sister. You haven't kept in touch with Brian then? No. Did you think that Brian w had been violent with Cheryl? No. I asked Sheila how the loss of Cheryl has affected her over time. Oh God, um, in the beginning I was heavily medicated. I was very close to my sister, but I've learned to accept it. I don't know if you understand. I, I, I miss her terribly, like, I have pictures of her, I talk about her all the time. My one daughter, my oldest daughter, reminds me so much of Cheryl, like, they're like two peas in a pod. Their personality, like, my sister was outgoing, the life of the party, and my daughter's the exact same way, you know? They look alike, you think that, Haley was my sister's daughter rather than my daughter. And she's blonde, blonde like my sister, you know? We were close, we were very close. She was very attached to my children, like she was over all the time, you know? My children spent, well, in the younger years, spent more time with her than they did with me. She was like the second mom. There's some people that say, oh, she's still alive, she's in Florida or something. Would you, do you believe any of that? No. No, I believe she would contact me. If she would contact, she was so attached to the children. The first call with Sheila comes to a close. I have confirmation about the tape, but not the letter that Margaret mentioned. I'll have to confirm with police. Okay, bye now. Bye, Sheila. 
Except, I still need to ask Sheila about Sam Pereira, the man who was arrested for killing two women in Hamilton, and who may have known Sheila's husband Richard, and thus made me wonder, did Cheryl ever meet Pereira? It seems unlikely, but it's also not the type of coincidence that you can easily ignore. So, another phone call to Sheila. Hello? Oh, hi, it's Sheila. I have a quick question for you. Richard Falkenham was the name of the person you lived with at one time, right? Yes. We just went to common law. But you're not with Richard anymore? No, absolutely not. And at the time when you were with Richard, did he ever meet Sam Pereira? Yep, he was in jail with him. And did he meet Sam outside of jail? No. So was Sam ever over at your place, would you say? No. Okay. I just wondered if there was a possibility that somehow Cheryl had come into contact with Pereira through Richard. Do you think that that's a possibility? No, no, no. Well, you thought, we thought about it, but... Yeah. I was eventually, through one of Sheila and Richard's daughters, able to get in touch with Richard himself. And in a gruff, world-weary voice, like a character out of a Tom Waits song, he told me he met Pereira in prison and talked to him over a few days in his cell. They exchanged phone numbers, but Richard says that Pereira and he never met outside of prison. So, while nothing is certain, based on what I've heard from Sheila and Richard and on further consultation with Detectives Tom and Abby Rashid, I can't find any evidence that Sam Pereira played a role in Cheryl's disappearance. These little papers, I don't have these. Can I copy these? I don't have these. What is this? It's a little your notes from the 4th and 5th of January. Oh, I used to write a lot of things down, eh? Would you have ta- made those notes on those days? Yeah. Some of the details I get from Sheila in our phone calls are echoed again when I visit Odette to check in and ask her a few questions about Cheryl's divorce from Brian. While searching through a set of Odette's documents, I stumble upon some of her original handwritten notes from the days immediately following Cheryl's disappearance. And it turns out there are a few extra details for Monday, January 5th, that I can now add to Odette's memories of the time. I got up at 4 a.m. this morning and, and got ready for work and then... Oh yeah, okay. That was the morning that my first day back from my holiday. I had to go to work. So for the evening of January 4th, when Odette gets home from her Christmas holiday down east, the story is the same. She comes home, talks to Michael, goes to sleep, gets up early to go to work, then asks for the day off because she's worried about Cheryl. She heads back to the Queenston Road apartment. Then there are new details to add to the timeline around 9.30 a.m. when she gets back to her apartment on Monday morning. Mike got up and after he had his shower and got ready to take me to Toronto to pick up my luggage at the train station. You went back to Toronto with Mike to get your luggage? Yeah. Apparently there was somebody got killed in Toronto. They jumped in front of the train and we couldn't get our luggage. It couldn't move the train. So I had to go pick up my luggage. So on the drive to get the luggage and stuff, do you remember Michael talking to you about anything? I questioned him about that. In the car? I, in the car. I said, did you see her going in? He says, no, I drove. I went in an in alleyway, like I mm-hmm. told you. Eh? Mm-hmm. And she got out and then I left because I was going to see the girls. 
on the way back home, I asked Mike if you could stop at, at Tim Horton where Cheryl worked. When Mike and I got there, I asked Paula and Tracy if they seen Cheryl. After picking up the luggage, Michael and Odette dropped in on the way back at Tim Horton's to speak to Paula Branton. Paula, you'll recall, is one of the twins that Cheryl was friends with. Then after Tim Horton's, Michael and Odette visited Sheila, and after that we're back on the timeline already set out, with Odette leaving to file the missing persons report and returning home to find, she says, that Michael had moved most of his belongings out of the apartment. I've also come across another sighting of Cheryl on the afternoon of Friday, January 2nd, 1998. According to police, after being seen at the bingo, she was seen again with Michael Lavoie by a friend working at a gas station sometime between noon and 2 p.m. Time for a visit to Detective Peter Tom to ask about the tape and the letter that I've heard Cheryl gave Sheila. Peter. I'm good. Happy, happy New Year, sir. Yeah, Happy New Year. I'm, I'm good. I guess I haven't seen you since uh, before Christmas. No, no. So I've been speaking to lots of different people since I saw you last. Okay. And I was speaking to Sheila, Sheila Shepard. And Sheila told me that she had received a tape from Cheryl prior to her disappearance. Okay. Do you recall that as part of the evidence? I know there was, there was a, yeah, the tape. It's her reading a disclosure document. It's her reading a disclosure document about yeah. what? About a case that Lavoie was involved in. She and Lavoie were involved? I believe so, yeah. Okay. So it would have been a case of theft or one of those? Um, I, I can't remember the specifics of the, the uh, tape. There was some discussion going on. There was a recorded phone conversation between her and a male who I believe to be Mike Lavoie, but nothing of real relevance in that. I wonder why she would give that particular tape to Sheila and say... You know, if I disappear, listen to this tape. What do you think? <laughs> I got no idea. No idea. It's not something that really pops out at you. And uh, was there a letter with it as well? Not that I can find any sign off, no. Okay, because uh, Margaret Giannet, who is Cheryl's aunt, mm -hmm. had said that on the day Sheila came into the police station with her, that she saw Sheila holding a letter and a tape and said... Cheryl gave me this letter and tape, and I'm going to give it to the police. Right. So, presumably the letter and tape had some relationship to each other, or at least to this utterance of, if I disappear, listen to this tape, read this letter. Right. But you're not able to find the letter. I can't find it, no. Can we listen to the tape? Uh, could it have some evidential value? Perhaps. So, I'm going to have to refuse that. Not even just to hear Cheryl's voice? Uh... I'm going to keep asking you for this. I mean, if there's anything that doesn't have the other male voice on it, the voice that you think is Michael, that doesn't necessarily mention a ca the case or anything probative, it would be really nice just to hear her voice mm. saying something. You take that under consideration. I'll think about it. 
Could this disclosure document that Cheryl was reading or discussing on the tape have some relevance to any of the stories I've heard so far about blackmail or why Cheryl might have been afraid for her life? Hard to know without hearing it, but Peter Tom seems firm on not releasing it. I wonder what happened to the letter Cheryl told her Aunt Margaret about, the one that Margaret says she saw at the police station in Sheila's hand. If it exists, does it have a relationship to the tape? Speaking of letters, there's one more letter I need to talk to Tom about while I'm here. Michael Lavoie's letter to Pat before he entered the storage locker. Detective Tom says that he took action based on hearing in the podcast that the letter existed. I, uh, I did meet with, with Pat and Bill, and she confirmed that she re- received a, a letter from Michael. Um, she was a bit vague on the contents. It was more so to do with um, him missing his previous wife and not getting to see his children as much and there was some money in there for his kids. And did you ask to see the letter? Apparently, when they moved from Hamilton to their current location, um, it was destroyed at that point. She held on to it for a number of years. What was the meeting like? If they were aware of anything um, in relation to to Michael uh, having anything to do with Cheryl's disappearance that they would not provide any information to the police in relation to that. It's really crucial that he comes and speaks, really. I mean, this is, he's the only one who can answer many of the questions that all boil down from all the interviews and people and discussions that I've had. Absolutely. Does the letter still exist? Did Michael ever write other letters to other relatives or friends? I move on to talking about something else that came up in my call with Pat. Brian's alibi. In the interviews with Brian Sweeney Mm -hmm. and Tracy Lavoie, Michael's sister, in 1998, was it ever established that Brian was with Tracy over the weekend Cheryl disappeared, or was was he not with Tracy that weekend? They weren't looking at him per se as a person of interest or a suspect in that. So, but in the course of his polygraph test, they must have asked Brian where he was that weekend, right? We were confident at that point that he um, wasn't involved. Okay. According to former detective Warren Coral, it was established that Brian had alibis from Thursday, January 1st, 1998, all the way across the weekend that Cheryl disappeared. According to Coral, Brian's friends and relatives stood by all of these claims. The one witness who I would like to directly confirm Brian's alibi with is Tracy Lavoie. But so far, Tracy is suggesting through my communications with her that she will not talk to me. I need her to come forward and tell me what she knows about these and other crucial details. George, I literally pulled in here just a second to come and knock on this house. That's where you live, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Sorry to bug you. Do you need help getting out or? 
No, I just have to save my time. What's oh, up? Okay, um, I'm, I work for CBC, CBC Radio, and I'm working on a documentary about Cheryl Shepard. Oh, yeah? And your name came up as somebody who might have witnessed something that I wanted to talk about, and it seems like a pretty important detail, if you wouldn't mind just <laughs> chatting with me about that. So now, okay. I've come to a home across the street from where Brian and his family lived at the time of Cheryl's disappearance to speak to a new witness I've become aware of after a discussion with Odette, who used to work with him. His name is George Lyon. George, you want me to get on the other side there? Yeah, okay. Great. George Lyon is almost 74, but he looks older, with wrinkled eyelids and a wizened face. He has the easy style of someone experienced with years of taxi talk with customers sitting in his van, much like I am now. It's dark on the street outside and George flicks on the interiors as I settle in the passenger seat, lighting us both in a superbly lurid glow. Well, thanks so much for doing this. It's way past time. I'm sorry? It's a way past time. Yes, it's one of those cases that just never goes away. Okay, it was New Year's Day that Cheryl drove up here and parked on this street. She parked right there and walked over to her, used to be her husband's or boyfriend's or something, number 25. And she was there for a little while. All the stories I've heard is she was never seen after the New Year's party in Niagara Falls. Well, she was. I saw her, my wife saw her. Here's a girl I knew her fairly well. I worked with her mother for a couple of years, three years. And uh, it's sad. George and his wife see Cheryl on New Year's Day, 1998, walking into the house that Brian lived in. So when you say uh, you saw her go into the house, did you see her leave the house? I did not see her leave the house. Uh, I know she was in there for a good hour and a half. How do you know that? Just because the car was there? Because we saw her get out of the car and go across the road. And, okay, the car was here for at least an hour and a half because it was parked right in front of me. You saw her, Cheryl, get out of the car? I saw her get out of that car. And you saw her go into that house? And I saw her go into that house. Did you see Brian? And I did not see Brian that day. Jeez, I can't say for positive I never saw him that Brian. I might have. But I did not see him right at that time. But... Do you remember the time of day, George, that you saw her drive up? It was around lunchtime. Maybe between 12 and 1, somewhere in there. And you would say it would, she would have been in there for an hour and a half, an hour, hour and a half, two hours. I would say well over an hour, maybe two hours. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. And then on that day, did you ever, did you see Michael Lavoie ever? I don't ever remember seeing Michael Lavoie. Now, I know the name rings a bell with me, but I don't, I can't picture him. Okay, but you know Brian. I know Brian, yeah. 
Did you ever ask Brian about that day? No, no. We didn't talk to Brian or his family. His grandma was okay. George wasn't a fan of his neighbors and seems relieved when he tells me about them finally moving out a few years ago. I'm done here for now. Well, that's fascinating. I really thank you for your time. Yeah, it'd be really interesting to find out what really happened. George Lyon has never heard that Cheryl was seen at the bingo and gas station the following day, on January 2nd, so he assumes that his sighting of Cheryl may be the last. And everyone I've spoken to about Brian says he was a sweetheart and would never have hurt Cheryl. But the reported actions of Brian's mother Dorothy regarding his alibi, as well as assertions made by Cheryl's aunt Margaret and Michael Lavoie's mother Pat, do make me wonder. Was something missed with Brian? Just recently, Brian texted me back. He's been listening to the podcast and wants to clear up some of the things he's been hearing. And so do I. Next, if all goes as planned, tracking down Brian Sweeney. You have been listening to Episode 11, Blackmail. Visit cbc.ca slash sks to see photos of Margaret Gionet, Grace Russo, and George Lyon. Someone Knows Something is hosted, written, and produced by David Ridgen and mixed by Cecil Fernandez. The series is also produced by Chris Oak, Steph Kampf, and executive producer Arif Nurani. Our theme music is by Bob Wiseman, with vocals by Mary Margaret O'Hara and Jess Reimer. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.